Hi, and welcome back to the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. This is episode 140, and to celebrate such a milestone, I have another excellent guest for you today in the form of Dr. James Moorhen. Hi, James. How are you doing? Hello. How are we? Thank you for the invitation to, to come and talk. Now, it's, it's great to have you on, James. I've actually wanted to get you, get you on for quite some time. I know I've only just reached out to you. Um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on, we were just discussing offline, actually, I, I, you know, I get all sorts of people on the, uh, the podcast, although most of, most of what we're doing here is focusing on, um, um, topics that relate to the practice ultimately of sport and exercise nutrition or topics that are relevant to that. So, um, that's kind of where my, my focus is. Um, but I'm particularly interested uh, in talking to people like yourself who have that, that dual sort of footed experience of science and practice. Um, and, in, and in this case, actually, we're going to talk to you about something you, you, you actually did your PhD in, which was in um, nutritional considerations for rugby or rugby league specifically um and some very specific areas there that i can't wait to talk to you about partly because uh, although it's been a few years now i most of my own professional practice uh career was working in um rugby teams um notably uh, london irish and, and bath were the teams that i spent most of my time with which of course rugby union i also worked with, uh, london broncos for a season rugby league um, which is the area that we're going to spend a bit of time talking out. And I've always, always remember thinking how awesome that game was, having always been a rugby union person and just blown away with how impressive rugby league players are from, you know, how they train and particularly how they perform. Um, but anyway, we'll come back to that because I, really, I really want to get into, into this. But James, tell us about who you are. Who is Dr. James Moorhan and uh, what, what are you up to in terms of your practice, your, your current research and, and so on? And then we'll, we'll kick off from there. Yeah, so um, I, I guess if we start back to kind of 1821 when I, I had no ambitions at all to go to university at that age. Um, and in fact, I was a, a qualified snowboard instructor living in Canada at the time. Um, so I had three years of traveling around the world and kind of getting that all out of the system. And then at 21, I decided to start and embark on my career at Liverpool John Moores University. Um, and that, you know, I was really fortunate there to enroll on the sport and exercise science program. Uh, as an undergrad student, I then rolled that straight onto a master's program in sports physiology. And then it was probably the persistence of of me knocking on Professor Close's door um, and, and loitering in the corridors and, and I suppose, yeah, ensuring that I got myself onto a PhD. Um, and that, yeah, that the kind of journey started there, really. I was very fortunate to be supervised by both Graham and, and James Morton. Um, and then, yeah, I had four and a half years of, of that PhD at, at Liverpool. Um, and yeah, re really lucky to... And, and fortunate to be working at the same time as a performance nutritionist in two Super League franchises. First, it was Witness Vikings. Um, and then I then 
made the um, the, the difficult and uh, dangerous step, I guess, to to go and work for their rivals down the road, uh, six miles down the road. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget the conversation. In disguise, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember the conversations with the with the CEO of, of Witness and the captain at the time, Kevin Brown. Um, but yeah, and then I had two really good years at Warrington Wolves, um, where I was I was lucky to to carry on the PhD research, but really found my feet as a performance nutritionist and applying the the stuff that I was learning out of John Moore's my own research um applying that and translating it into the the athletes that I was working with from academy to senior players and then at the end of the PhD uh, the funding ran out from Warrington um so then technically I was unemployed um I'd, I'd kind of finish that PhD funding period and then that was then when I applied for the, the role at England football um and so yeah i've i've now been at england football in august it will be 3 years and that's um embedded in in the physical performance and nutrition department there looking after the performance nutrition strategies for the 15 national teams so it's um brilliant role and and yeah it's it's been a crazy journey from 21 to 30 31 this year so it's awesome yeah, it's been a good time no that's brilliant i mean what a wealth of experience and education you've got behind you um i mean the yeah the difference between rugby and football well we, we might get into that because i certainly found that interesting but back in back in the sort of black and white days of when i was working in in uh with professional rugby teams i mean i wish i wish that i knew what i knew now uh in terms of knowledge but also back then there was practically no science or research to help inform you know, um, uh, any evidence-based approaches I might have, have wanted to explore uh, anyway, um, which is why, you know, y- your work, and of course, LJMU has done a lot, you know, I obviously had Graham on many times on here, but, um, you know, the, the, the development, as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, of performance nutrition in general, um, you know, the, the, the science, particularly the applied-focused science has um, I'm not sure the word exploded is the right term because still, relatively speaking, it's quite small, um, it, you know, as it relates to the wider and greater body of knowledge in, in sports science, but it's, it's, it's significantly progressed. Um, and of course, you've contributed to that with your work. So I'm looking forward to, to getting into that. But I, do, I, I love rugby. Uh, there's no way I, I, I played rugby at school and at, you know, college and so on, but I, you know, never good enough to be anything with it. But the great thing about working as a performance nutritionist is you, you get to embed yourself in such a fantastic environment. And I've worked in a lot of sports as, as you, and I, I have nothing but fond memories of working, um, as the, you know, team performance nutritionist, you know, things that I think you just mentioned, or at least offline, you know, everything from just being able to unleash what you know, um, you know, with the players, but also just the banter and the camaraderie. And uh, I guess the main thing for me, um, be interesting to see how you found this, is just the sheer willingness of rugby players to, you know, to, to, to actually engage in, in nutrition, you know, strategies one way or the other. I can certainly say many other sports that I've worked in 
um, has been, you know, uh, uh, more challenging in, in that regard. Um, so anyway, enough about my experiences and, uh, and let's get more into yours. Let, let's, um, you know, quickly uh, just, just define a little bit about what we're talking about here because, uh, you know, a lot of people know rugby, but they, you know, I have a very international audience here, so they don't necessarily know the difference between rugby union and, and rugby league. Maybe you could just, before we talk about why you even did this research, let's just, just you know, add some context here. So um, um, help us understand what is rugby? A little bit of it's just very super brief bit of history there because we're proud being British about this. So, and, and what is that difference between those two different types of rugby? Yeah, Christ, you're testing me now. But look, so <laughs> I, I'm a I'm a I'm a Union boy, um, being from Essex originally. So you know, I I, had, I was parachuted into that Witness Vikings team, and and again had to learn about rugby league myself. So look, league is a sport. Um, Thirteen players on the field rather than your fifteen in Union. Um, but but the one thing that really blew me away with league was was the quick, fast-paced nature of the game. Mm. And, and when you compare that to the stop-start nature of rugby union, whether that be resetting of three or four scrums in the same position, um, the line-outs, players walk into the line-outs quite slowly, the, the, the flip of that in rugby league is that the ball goes out and it, almost instantaneously it's back in play and, and they're carrying on. And yeah, so the the big thing for me was was how quick the game was, um, and and with that, how fit the players are. Now, I'm not saying that rugby union players aren't fit because they they definitely are, but it's 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 a complete different game to play. Um, and I think if you look at those players that have tried to cross over in codes, you know, there there's probably a higher number of players that have attempted to cross over and not managed it than those that have been successful. And I think the Billy Wiz of Jason Robinson is probably the best example of someone who managed to do that. Um, and, and I think it comes down to because the dem demands of the game are so, so different. Um, the, the scrums in rugby league are, are uncontested. So you don't need the, the, the force and the power that those union front five are, are producing. It's simply a way of resetting the game and getting the ball back in play. Um, and and with the role in uh, subs as well. Um, so, you know, the, the role in subs in league, as, as soon as a, a player's been marshalled off by the coach that's on the pitch or the water boy, then the other one's straight on. And it's, um, again, that's that, that quick nature of it. Whereas in union, you've, you physically have to wait until that player comes to the line and then and then you can go on. So yeah, I, I would say the biggest thing for me is that's the the, the quickness of the game. Um, yeah, that that was something that you know, standing on the sidelines for three years watching watching Witness and Warrington. That that was one thing that really stood out for me. Yeah, and it, look, you, you've already inferred it there. It's it's an impressive game because of a number of reasons. You know, it, 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 I think it's safe to say that 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 most people, even if you're not rugby fans, union, league, whatever, you know, the, the game of rugby is, is quite entertaining one way or the other. And one of the reasons why it's entertaining um, um, is you've got some significant units on the pitch, right? We're not talking little diddly characters. Um, even, even the shorter ones are still pretty, pretty large when you actually go stand up next to them. 
So what we've got is really big, big lads. Um, and of course, you know, uh, and we're talking about males in this, you know, we obviously need to be, you know, bearing in mind that this isn't just a male sport. Um, and the, you know, the, 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 the female, uh, version, if you like, of this is, is also exploded over the years, but we're going to focus on, on, on males here, but it is just the sheer size of these guys. And this is something that isn't just entertaining. It is also a very important characteristic of the sport that us as performance nutritionists need to bear in mind because there are ramifications of people of that size um colliding into each other which is what happens in rugby a lot and um uh no disrespect to um our uh, american friends on the other side uh, of the pond but these guys aren't wearing helmets and pads and they're not taking breaks every five you know however freak how often it is these yeah. are huge characters extraordinarily fast particularly in rugby league um who, who, who can do and often do under, undergo serious damage as a result of those collisions. Um, but getting those guys that, to be that size and getting them to perform, be function, not to be big, but be functional, um, is, is, a really, uh, um, is a really big deal in rugby league. Because in rugby union, you know, they talk about things like you know, pack size, the weight of, 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 of the scrum, which ha- can have a strategic ad- advantage, but that weight isn't necessarily functional in the way that we would apply that in rugby league, where we can't afford to have, you know, for want of basic phraseology, fat, overweight rugby league players, because the consequences of that is that they're not going to be as fast, you know, uh, change of direction and all that stuff, which I'm going to get you to, to tell about in a minute. Um, but this is, this is, this is, quite a lot of work for you know the uh, the snc team uh for the nutritionists uh, and everyone else that's involved as well as of course the you know the the sports medical team to help patch these guys up when when all that injury does does come about so maybe um you could tell us why 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 did you feel it necessary being a rugby union boy why, why did you feel it necessary to do research in this particular area? Let's start off with that first. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm just going to reverse a little bit there. There's a, there's yeah, a number go. of points that, you, um, that really stood out for me there. And, you know, the, these players are tough, tough blokes. They're, you know, rugby league, the, the tradition and history of league players is that they are tough blokes. And if you look at where they're growing up in, you know, the hills of Cumbria and across that kind of, that um, that band that runs from Liverpool to Hull, um, you know, the, the background of these guys is, is phenomenal. And there, there's so many occasions where I've seen players with, you know, fractured bones in wrists, toes, um, you know, getting jabbed before games so that they can go out and play. And, you know, I've seen players that are visibly concussed, not realising they're concussed and, and wanting to play on. Obviously, they they were brought off um, when when they needed to be, which is 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 you know looking after the health. But the point I'm trying to get across is that these boys will do anything and everything to play the game of rugby league, um, and and with that, there's there's I just want to bring in some of Ben Fletcher's work, hmm. which looked at the the subjective soreness of players across a whole season, 
and and a really nice simple data that that Ben showed was that the the players obviously after that as, as they're leading into the game, the the soreness is not too bad because they've only done a little bit of physical training, um, kind of on a match day minus two and match day minus one. They play the game, and then obviously there's this enormous amount of soreness, and and what was interesting is that. At no point during the season did they ever actually return back to what they would perceive as as not being sore. And so chronically over a whole season, these guys are basically reporting that they're just always sore. Yet they don't moan about it. They they get on with it and they, they go ahead and they play the game. And so coming back to your question about why did I want to research this, this area? I mean, for me and Graham, Graham being an ex-pro himself, he, he obviously understands the game very well. And... We both had the interest in rugby um, and, and research in it. And fundamentally, I wanted to try and understand a little bit more about the players that I were working with. So from the academy guys at Witness to the senior squad, you know, understanding what, what does body composition look, in, look like in these players? Can academy players grow from one season to the other? I'll, I'll never forget Witness um, at Witness Vikings. We had... One player in the academy at 70, sorry, 17 years old, and he was about 63 kilos, <laughs> playing against senior grade witness players who were 120. And I'll never forget watching him play, and he, was an, he still is an unbelievable player, but, but looking at that, thinking, Christ, like if he gets hit, there's a severe amount of damage going on there. But not only That's that. That's why they're so fast, James, because yeah, they grew exactly. up. For exactly, you want to run away for survival. <laughs> yeah, and if you look at Rob Burrows, like great example, that the guy's had an unbelievable career. At I think he's an inch taller than me, five foot six, five foot seven. So uh, a great example there of someone who, who's had a very, very successful and you know won loads of, of trophies. But yeah, the the, the passion was there um, to try and understand how these guys can grow, how can they adapt. And then really, how can nutrition try and support these guys? Um, you know, at the time, did we know what the energetic requirements of rugby league looked like? Not really. Did we know anything about what foods might be able to help these guys recover from not only exercise-induced muscle damage, but now impact-induced muscle damage? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, you know, there's a difference between the normal contraction of, a, of, of running and, and the legs just going in that, that locomotion to how I presented it once at a conference was one rugby player is the equivalent body weight of a commercial fridge. <laughs> and so you've got one rugby player running towards three commercial fridges who are trying to stop him in his tracks. Now, if I asked you to go and run at your commercial fridge in your kitchen, you'd, you'd think I was bonkers, but... These guys do it repeatedly over and over again for 80 yeah. minutes and they absolutely love it. Yeah. And so it was looking at that going, okay, can we try and quantify this? Can we try and investigate and see what sort of level of inflammation is going on? And then can nutrition try and support that and try and help that? And that's kind of a, a brief summary really of the, of the whole PhD there. But, you know, we can definitely dive into some more detail on some of, some of them studies. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's loads there. I mean, I remember pretty much day one uh, working in a professional rugby league club, as I said, London Broncos. And um, I remember, 
you know, one of the things you do as a performance nutritionist, a lot of is body composition, you know, do your Isaac profiles and all your players. So of course, you know, these big lads come in and, um, you know, take the shirt off and you, you know, you, 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 you get to work marking them up and then doing all the skin folds. And, you know, the thing that struck me between that and say rugby union is every single one of them was in good shape, you know, and, and the player that the player that the coach or one of the S guys would be like, Oh, that, he's not in as good shape as he should be. Be like, blimey, he's in good shape. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there was that, but also just how many of them had scars and other, you know, evidence of damage. Um, you know, it was like working with boxers, you know, I, I've worked a few, with a few boxers as well. And, you know, you get used to seeing the, you know, bruises and uh, maybe the odd bit of surgery or whatever. Yeah. They all had this. It was pretty, pretty mind boggling. Um, so you, you know, you see it there, it's real. Um, and, um, you can see just the evidence of, you, you know, what you're, you're saying, the fridge or for our, I'll translate that for the non Brits, uh, you know, the refrigerators, these, yeah. these, these enormous units just colliding with each other is is a very real issue but like you say they don't complain it's just amazing um, I love it. And, <laughs> i mean one, one guy stands out for me um and super benny westwood is his name but an absolute hero of the game a hero of warrington but you know smashing and breaking his wrist in a, in a contact but getting up almost looking at his wrist to think you know christ what's happened there yeah but but playing on and and just ripping into the next set and actually taking the ball into another set and and going into a tackle it was only when he realized he couldn't catch with that hand did he you know drop down to one knee and and then the the physios come on and the doctor's there and they're like yeah your, your wrist is broken but had he have um have not dropped to one knee, he would have just carried on and played that game out. And yeah. there's so many examples of that. Joe Westerman's a, a brilliant example of when he dislocated his knee for for um, Hull, I think it was. And and he's there just slapping his kneecap back in. And then up he gets and he, he carries on and plays the next set. So, yeah, I think the, the summary of that is that, you know, these guys are tough and they're, they're willing to crack on and, and, and play the game that they love. Yeah. Now, this is relevant because... It's not just you and I, uh, you know, talking about something that obviously we both clearly love the sport. And, you know, it's just, oh, like I said, I'm smiling just thinking about how, how much fun those days, those days were. But, you know, no joking aside, this stuff's pretty serious. And our job as performance nutritionists, first and foremost, is to try and keep these lads healthy, uh, keep these players in one piece. Um, you know, the, the, I think it's quite clear that, you know, the days are gone where sports nutrition was just about trying to get your players to adapt to training or, um, you know, get them bigger, faster, stronger. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to keep them, we're trying to keep them on the pitch. We're trying to, you know, help them deal with a, a season of sustained impact and injury and illness and reduce infection incidents and so on and so forth. So maybe... Um, rather than just dipping our toes in this, because this is directly relevant to what performance nutritionists are going to need to do in this kind of sport. And it's not just rugby league or rugby sevens. There are many sports um, that involve some pretty big units um, that will have some similarity to this. So obviously, you know, this is, this is a value to lots of people listening um, from the research community all the way through to those current and aspiring performance nutritionists. So, um, from your perspective, having researched and practiced in this area, 
what are what are going to be then the main areas of consideration um, that we need to focus on? Bearing in mind there are so many different things um, that a rugby player, rugby league player, is engaged in in their job. Um, being human beings, of course, in the real world, but also, you know, what's involved in terms of strength conditioning and, you know, the requirements from turning up to their, to their work, uh, uh, practice sessions, so on and so forth, that we need to be mindful of as performance nutritionists as we start to do a needs analysis on this and go, right, what can I do to help in this situation? Um, let's start with that. So what are the, what are the, what are the main areas that we're going to need to be aware of as it, you know, to differentiate it say from football and, and um, cricket or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, kind of as you're asking that question, I'm, I'm just noting a few things down so I don't mm. forget, but I think, um, look, with, with rugby body compositions, clearly a, a, a massive area that is, is a big focus for a lot of players, a lot of clubs, um and and with that it's the it's trying to increase and and get as much lean mass as we can on on those individuals we know that the the greater um lean mass that the individual has the more likely he's going to be able to produce force um and and force in a tackle and power and strength is you know there's some great research showing that um, you know, the, the stronger your squad is, the, the more likely they, they're going to be ben, more beneficial in the game. So I think functional mass is, is a big one. Now, it, it, it's also key to remember here that functional mass does include that fat mass as well. And, you know, I've, I've probably learned um, myself as a, as a young practitioner from, from doing this and, and is, is to be careful not to focus too much on fat mass because the, and the reason I'm saying this is because if, if the focus is more on lean mass and being able to obtain lean mass just by nature of a nutrition strategy and a, and a player following a good nutrition strategy with the focus of, oh, I want to get bigger and, um, and have more muscle the, the knock-on effect 95% of the time with that would be that they become leaner. They, they begin to lose a little bit of fat mass because they're now focusing on, you know, the three T's of nutrition. They're, they're consuming enough protein over the course of the day um, and, and recovering properly. So I think an area like the functional mass area in rugby is huge. I, I also think that if, if all else failed, if, rugby players were able to get the match day minus one and match day fueling strategy correct and, and optimal. So, could, you know, when you were at London Broncos, could you hand on heart say that every single one of your player in that starting squad were nailing their match day minus one and match day fuel strategy? And, you know, I, I ask myself this every day and I think it's so important that, you know, we know the research and we know the literature on how important glycogen is for performance, especially in rugby and football. And so it's looking at that match day minus one and match day and really nailing down and, and making sure that every single player, not only, not only has the, the education and the opportunity to do it, but actually goes forward and, and does that match day minus one strategy. So if, if we set it at six gram per kilo, for example, in rugby or eight gram per kilo of body weight in football. Let's make sure they all hit that. 
And then I guess the flip of that is that now they've played that game and, and certainly in rugby, they've, you know, they've come off the pitch. They've had 80 minutes against Leeds Rhinos. It's been a, it's been a really demanding physical game. You've, you've now got that acute window of recovery. And again, I would ask you the same question. Your London Broncos players, did every single one of that, every single player in that squad really understand and know how important it was to get nutrition right in that first four hours, let alone in the 72 hours after that game? And I think if, if you then just focused on match day minus one, match day, and then arguably match day plus one, you've got three days of the week where if you really nailed the strategies and you were hand on heart, you could say every one of your squad was, was hitting the scientific evidence, the literature, the, the known um, gram per kilos that we know are important for recovery and fueling. I think that could make such a big difference um, for, yeah, for, for not only rugby league, rugby union and, and football squads. Um, so, so yeah, that it's kind of that, that three day window. And then the big thing that I learned, Lauren, in, in rugby league, especially was, was the importance of the key stakeholders for those players. And, you know, to, to diverge a little bit out of nutrition, but it was always, uh, surrounding nutrition was the impact of the, the girlfriends and the wives at home. And the reason I say this was because a lot of the players, you know, had family, they had kids. And what I realized very quickly at Witness was by nature of when training finished at kind of 2.30, 3 o'clock, a lot, of the, a lot of the fellas would then go and pick the children up from school or nursery. And I found out that just by having a chat with a lot of them, that that, that window of opportunity of recovering from the, the demands of training in that day was um, in, in terms of that school run, that, that three, three o'clock um, window of opportunity for getting nutrition in, none of them were really doing anything there. And, and what I realized was that they'd just, they'd just finished training, they'd just been beasted. And yet their recovery strategy was, I'm going to go and pick the kids up from school. Yeah. And so that was a real area of focus that I looked at in terms of getting that, that, you know, that uh, opportunity of nutrition in around three, three thirty, four o'clock and then and it was then extrapolating that out to say okay once you are home with the with the wife and with the family what is it you're eating then and then also it was then extrapolating that out to the to the dinner uh, sorry to the pre-bed so following dinner what are you having before bed now how are you preparing ready for the next day of training and i think if you look at those three window of opportunities there for food to go in you've got the school run you've got dinner at home and you've got the, the pre-bed window you know seven days in a week you've got 21 feeding opportunities there where unless you address that issue that's 21 opportunities that might not even be a focus for that player and if, if you combine that over the course of the weeks and the months of the season there's some real big impacts to be um to be had and some good changes to be made there and that was where we started educating some of the, the partners and, and, you know, getting them involved as well with some of the nutritional education. So I've, I've gone on a little bit there, but hopefully that gives it. No, no, you may. Well, no, that's exactly where I want to go with this because there's what we read in textbooks and papers and even, 
you know, back when I was doing that stuff, we, I mean, I said, you know, we, we just had no real knowledge about nutrition for rugby. So you borrow from other sports, you know, and other general concepts and you just throw it into that situation. And the mistake, particularly for a really young, young early career practitioner can be, um, I don't want to use the word naivety, but it is essentially, you know, you're just not, you, you know, you've learned some lessons there. I certainly have yeah. learned many lessons and, and yeah, yeah, that's why I use phrases like they're not just rugby players, they're human beings, you know, um, there's 24 hours in a day. They're not just at the club. They do have other things that they do. And like you say, I had the same experiences was realizing that they feel the need to take their kids you know, um, for a walk after school and it might, you know, on a hot day, they might go buy an ice cream van and buy some ice cream and they can have an ice cream with the kids. Um, you know, there's things that it's, it, it, they're not just machines. I mean, yes, they're machines, (laughs) um, but they're not just machines. They're human beings. And, um, I think you're very right to say that because we have to consider that. The other thing though, of course, is if as a practitioner, you're not going to great lengths to learn how to communicate with your athletes you may not learn about this stuff because um either you've not asked the questions or you've you know you've not allowed yourself to be approachable someone who they can have a chat with a bit of banter um and that's one of the things i loved about the rugby environment the team the family you know but you've got to make we'll get into that a bit later actually about important characteristics of, of just being a good practitioner and how to make it work um but like you say there's a lot of feeding opportunities and and as sports nutritionists that presents um um great potential but it is all, it is also potential for problems of course isn't it if they're not eating the right stuff and of course being humans um you know uh, particularly big units um there are some areas like i, I guess more so in, in rugby union back in the day when i was doing it you know alcohol was also quite a big issue as yeah. well and like you say with players that are sore all the time um one way you can anesthetize some of that um uh, you know is through is through booze so um you you talked about you know um what we've learned in recent times i guess through through science relative to like i said there was really nothing back when i was practicing in that area um Apart from what you can research yourself as a practitioner, and we'll come back to that a bit more in a minute in understanding the unique setup of your own club and your own players and the fact that they do have individual needs and so on. What, you know, because you've done some research, for example, in the energy demands of these, of these players, which is an obvious area, um, you would think at least, for us to consider um but you cannot cross over from rugby union even can you because there is a difference you just have to watch a rugby league game to see that there's a clear difference in energy expenditure so what what you know what from that perspective what what were you expecting before you even looked at that research and how did that you know and end up in terms of findings yeah so the um the energy expenditure one really that was uh, again it you know the these were these really stemmed from conversations that me and Graham were having and, and, and having with the players as well. So trying to really um, improve body composition on, on certain players um, without having an understanding 
understanding of what the demands of their week looked like. And so it was almost a recipe for disaster because without that research and, you know, not just my research, but Debbie Smith's done some great work with Leeds. Um, Nessan's done some brilliant work. Without that research, you're almost putting uh, your finger up and, and just kind of guessing what way the wind's coming from. And so we really wanted to to try and quantify to the best of our ability what the energetic demands and energy expenditure over a normal training week looked like in rugby league. And so to do that, we, we were fortunate at the time. This was um, in my first year at Witness Vikings. And so we, we selected... Um, six players from different positions we'd already spoke with the the head coach and he'd kind of given us an insight that these six players were were most likely going to play in both weeks um, and and just by nature of the size of the rugby boys when you enrich your doubly labeled water to the to the weight that they were you you're quite lucky in a way because you then get that extended um, study period of, of all, yeah basically 14 days two weeks um, and, and so we then looked at, okay, now we're going to analyze and assess energy expenditure over a 14-day period. This is brilliant because we can compare one week to the next. Um, we can also compare forwards to backs. Um, and then also it allowed us to really understand whether energy intake and, and what these guys were consuming was matching the energy expenditure. Now, one of the, the limitations of this study, and, and again, I'll come back to, to me learning as an early career researcher, was the accurate ability of quantifying energy intake. And, you know, I think as nutritionists, we will all respect and understand how hard it is to, to get energy intake, quant you know, analysed and, and uh, um, collected correctly and and also reliable reliable um and to the best of our ability and and i look back at that study and 100 percent those guys were not telling me everything they were eating because <laughs> their body weight stayed the same over the course of the two weeks but the energy intake was nowhere near to what the expenditure was but if you take the energy intake out of it just for a second and you actually look at the expenditure so the w labeled water method is is the gold standard at the moment for free living humans um, and so we were really confident that the data we were getting from the, the dlw was was telling us you know the, the correct data and i've just got it here that if, if you look at forwards versus back so the forwards in and around 5,000 calories being expended over the course of the day. Now, of course, that is a crude division of 14 days in terms of your total energy expenditure. Because again, one of the limitations of DLW is that you can't get daily. But if you look at the forwards versus the backs, so 5,200 calories versus the backs in and around 4,900. So on a whole, really, these guys are expending 5,000 kcal a day. So... If I look back at some of my early work with with some of these players in terms of what I was advising them to consume, you know, you, you're not anywhere near that really because you didn't really know what they needed to consume. Now we've realised that in fact they might need to consume in the region of four to five thousand calories a day. Is it any wonder that some of the body composition targets that both the players were trying to achieve and also we wanted them to achieve were not being hit? 
And so I think that that really gave me some good insight as a practitioner in witness at the time to say, wow, now, now we're beginning to understand what the demands of the game look like. Now we can really start to focus and, and begin to give some individual nutrition strategies to try and get that 63 kilo academy player bigger and, and built up to more of a senior player and, and understanding that we've now got some really good data from the DLW. Um, so that, that, that was a real interesting study and it's, um, it's, it's been a passion of mine to carry that stuff on and we've got some exciting work now um, with, with England Brilliant. football where I work. So keep, keep the eyes peeled for that, I would say, for the future. Yeah, and also uh, there's a lot in this. I want to stay in this area. Um, um, but also it's not just about energy expenditure. You guys um, and related researchers, um, particularly at LJMU, I know um, have, have not just looked at this externally in terms of sort of, you know, an extrinsic view of energy expenditure, but also taking a look in the muscle itself at muscle glycogen depletion rates because you know i guess that's yes. that's another thing isn't it like well, what's happening in the fuel tank what what was learned from that that work yeah i mean look lauren this was a this was an unbelievable study um, i mean i'm biased to this because i was i was in the the depths of it at the time with with dr warren bradley actually and we we were so fortunate that not only did we have a an academy playing group that were tough as nails but we also had a club we had a we had a super league franchise whose ceo was brought into the process and we had the head coach dennis betts at the time who understood the importance of collecting this data Mm. and so i mean this was a fascinating study because what we did and and there's a funny story to this so we we had we split the group into a, a higher carb and a lower carb group so you had a six gram per kilo versus a three gram per kilo body weight of carbohydrate intake group. And we, um, me and Warren, we went to Asda, we spent, we spent about 300 pound of, of Graham's research money on, on all of the carbohydrate food. And then the, the players on their 36 hours leading into the match, they, they consumed their respective groups, high carb or low carb. And then we, we arrived or on the, on the day that we were going to run this study, we, we woke up and it snowed. And we arrived at Witness, and anyone who's been to Witness will know that they play on a 4G pitch. And so there was absolutely no opportunity for the drainage to, to get rid of the snow on the day. And so we had, we had this playing group that were either high carb fueled up or kind of three gram per kilo fueled, ready to play this game. We had an army of about 18 research practitioners we had four medically trained biopsy uh, takers. We had two doctors on site and we had a load of LJMU researchers ready. And fair play to Dennis Betts. He, he wasn't, nor was it safe to play that game on essentially what was a, a, a pitch full of snow and slush. And, and Dennis turned around to us and he said, the main reason I don't want this to happen is because you won't get true data in terms of what is representative of rugby league, because the game will be played different. They're playing on slush and they're playing on snow. So if you do take biopsies today, it's not going to be a representation of the game. So anyway, long story cut short, we delayed it two weeks and we went through the same motion again. We had a high carb group and a low carb group. 
And then what we did on that day, we took muscle biopsies before an 80-minute rugby game. And the players were fantastic. There were some players that weren't too keen on it. Um, there were some players that absolutely loved seeing a biopsy gun go in their quadriceps. And then we had the team of, of researchers there. We, we strapped up the players. Um, we took bloods as well. So they had bloods out of the arm. We took biopsies out of the leg. Um, and then they went on. We strapped up their legs and they, they went and played this 80-minute game, um, which is, was amazing to see because there's some unbelievable pictures that Graham presents at conferences where I've you've got these them, players... Yeah. Yeah. running around the pitch with their all of their legs strapped up <laughs> and then the brilliant thing after was that yeah. the moment that the full time went in they came and we had a we had a really good system where four players dived on the bed and and the post-match biopsies were, were taken within 15 to 30 minutes of that full-time window and this was the first study in the world to to ever try to quantify what the utilization of glycogen is from an 80 minute rugby game, looking at that higher carb versus lower carb group. And what we found with the data was that the, the, the main results really were that those, there was a number of players who consumed the, the three gram per kilo carbohydrate leading were almost hitting premature, premature fatigue. So they, they were well and below the kind of 100 to 150 um, glycogen within the muscle. And, and that showed us that the six, six gram per kilo is probably where we need our rugby players to be in terms of a, a, a carbohydrate strategy leading into the game. If, if we underfuel and we, we lean towards the three gram per kilo, we're going to risk premature fatigue. And so it was based off of that then that if you look at certainly my nutritional strategies when I then went to Warrington and for the rest of the season at Widness, and, and certainly some of the nutritional strategies that a lot of rugby practitioners will use in the game now, it's based off of that research. Hmm. And, you know, I, I'm excited to see a similar research project happen now in rugby union as well. And whether it will happen, I don't know, but a passion of mine is that a study like that happens in professional football again. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've had the we've had the earmark study from from Bergstrom and um, and the glycogen data from kind of years ago, but you know a 21st century muscle biopsy study in professional soccer is is surely where we need to be aiming for now. Agree. The core. I, I have to say, having worked in both both fields, um, knowing Premier League professional football players, soccer players, I. I I can see some challenges with making that work, but my God, wouldn't that be awesome? But in all, in all seriousness, we, you know, we, we have that phrase, evidence-based practice, um, which I move forward to what I feel is the cor correct terminology really should be evidence-informed practice. Um, and as practitioners, we're, we're using this evidence to inform our practice. But it's very interesting. You just made it clear that up until very recently, we were giving or, or trying to give nutritional advice based on evidence that isn't based on actual research done on actual rugby league or rugby union or indeed on football players. Um, so we've been um, strategically and, and intelligently, but nonetheless winging it up until more recently, which is very interesting, isn't it? How the, the research is, is now starting to, to help us as, as, 
as practitioners. But therein lies a bit of a, a wake-up call that we need to bear in mind, you know, how relevant is that information that we're putting into our practice settings? You know, where does it come from and what is the translational potential of it? Um, which you talk about Graham, of course, of course, that brings us to the whole, you know, uh, paper to podium concept, which yeah. Graham has uh, done a podcast with me on. And it's an area that I'm absolutely passionate on. But let's just stay in that area because, we, we, you know, we're not just trying to fuel them in a rugby game. We're talking about people who are undergoing, um, well, pre-season, early season, all the way through the season. We're still trying to keep them as big units who need to be strong, powerful, fast uh, players on that pitch, where they're also, you know, collecting impact damage throughout the season and other associated stresses on their body, um, where, like you just said, you know, if we haven't even been fueling them right, the implications of that isn't just body composition. Of course, it's things like the immune system, potentially. Um, which um which is another uh, uh, another so in fact the podcast just before this one was with uh, dr uh, richard simpson where we talked about you know the potential for arduous training having um a negative impact on the immune system you know is that or is that not a case um and of course he makes a you know a, a sort of a wider point which of course professor neil walsh argues for another another ljmu professor of course you know, about the holistic um, perspective we need to take on this. Um, and by that, I mean life stress, um, training stress, work stress, travel. I mean, rugby players travel as well. There's, there's, there's all of that. So when we combine all of that, James, bringing you back to being the practitioner, thinking beyond just fueling for energy expenditure that you now have a better understanding of based on that research that you've just shared with us. You know, what, 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 what are your thoughts on that? And, and, you know, how, how should we be approaching that as, as practitioners when we're considering the fueling needs of our rugby players? Yeah, definitely. And, and there's a, there's a nice segue there that you speak about Lauren, about the, the understanding of kind of the, the player over the whole season and, and the growth and the development of the of the players, and I suppose that I'm just going to talk a little bit there about two of the PhD studies that I did, understanding that really, and and trying to 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 really quantify and and look at how do academy players grow, and you know, is it possible? And we've all been there. We've all been there in clubs where coaches would um, almost uh, not not throw a comment out, but I suppose request that a player puts on three kilos in 12 weeks and I want it all to be lean mass. And, you know, I've been there and I've listened to those comments. And again, that kind of built some of the, the passion for the, the research studies that we did, that we did on the, the DEXA. And so the, the first study was looking at can, can academy players develop over time? And if they can, what does that development look like? And I suppose the, the main take home from that study was that we, we tracked, um, we tracked uh, 11 academy players over three seasons and we looked at what changes were actually possible in not only total mass, but the, the big one that everyone loves, um, lean mass. And obviously that was, that was um, measured as lean mass from the DEXA scan, which we all understand and, and are 
are aware that that's fat-free mass. And, and the main take-home from that was that it took three years for some of these academy players to develop and grow any substantial changes in lean mass. And so my main take-home there for, for the coaches at the time was that you, you, you can't put this pressure on young academy players to develop as quick as you want them to because, unfortunately, it's either going to result in a, in a massive amount of overfueling and then we're going to gain unwanted mats or, and this has happened in league and it happens in, in rugby union as well, unfortunately, the players turn to strategies that are illegal and which you know will result in a ban so and and that has happened with with players that I know in rugby league um and so that that main study there was all about understanding and appreciating that academy players take time to grow and certainly at that age there's some players that have developed into their senior physique and stature already and there's some players that are still very young and still growing and just the the appreciation from coaches there that that takes time and then I think that then progressed into the kind of the the other study where I looked at what changes was possible in a in a preseason period. Now these guys are big commercial refrigerators. What what changes are possible in these blokes? And that was a real really interesting study looking at ninety nine pro players from four different clubs. And and what we found interestingly was actually over a preseason period there's no significant changes in lean mass, fat mass, and total mass. And when we started looking at the, the data a bit closely and, and thinking about it in the applied sense, you know, if you look at someone like Chris Hill, who's a captain at Warrington, the guy is 128 kilos. On, on the DEXA, his lean mass is coming out at around 85 kilo. And you look at him and you go, are you really going to get any bigger? Because he he doesn't and i don't think he ever will because he is he is chris hill he is who he is now you could argue that he could put more fat on but for him to smash through a six week hypertrophy phase in a preseason and to come out with minimum change in lean mass to me suggests that this bloke has already occurred his lean mass on that frame and so it then made us think about what other areas of focus could there be for someone in that prop forward position and what you see in rugby league which is really interesting is the majority of the subs that are made are actually those prop forwards because there's an inability at the moment of prop forwards to play a full 80 minute game and the reason for that is because you could argue that they might not have the 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 uh, stamina and the, the physical fitness to play 80 minutes whereas a center or a winger or a halfback or a hooker normally would have no problem playing an 80 minute game Rob, Rob Burrows would play 80 minutes no problem but so we, we then started thinking about okay should we spend that six weeks of hypertrophy should we actually spend that on getting Chris Hill fitter and and making him be able to to last 80 minutes as a prop forward because if you can do that it then it then creates your starting 11 as a very very scary and dangerous squad because you're looking at the squad going, I know those prop forwards are not coming off because they can sustain 80 minutes. And if they do come off at 60 minutes or 70, there's two fresh prop forwards that are going to come on. And so um, that was a really interesting study, looking at the actual change that was possible in a pre-season period. And, and I, I guess threw the question out to the rugby league 
um, arena to maybe think about what other aspects of, of the physical profile and physical fitness of a player that could be worked on in that pre-season period if they're already at their optimal body composition? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? And again, you, it's worth, if you, yeah, it's worth standing next to these guys just to get an appreciation yeah. of just how big some of these lads are. And that, that brings me back to um, something you mentioned before, which was, you know, they, they, they don't complain, but they will frequently say that they're sore pretty much all the yeah. time. And as the season progresses, that actually just gets worse. And I, I always like to think of rugby players, particularly as the season progresses, as, as you know, athletes that are functionally injured. <laughs> they're still, they are in various states of injury just throughout that season. I mean, as I said, you know, when I would do my regular body comps on the players, I mean, it was rare to see a player who didn't at least have a bruise, <laughs> yeah, yeah. at least. So the body is dealing with not just recovering from the demands of, of a game, which is significant, um, the physical exercise alone and the impact, of course, um, but also the, um, you know, the training. Let's, in fact, let, before we come to the soreness issue, yeah. um, we should also um, quickly talk about the fact that, that yeah, they're, they're big units, um, but we're hoping that they don't shrink as the season progresses because they might lose um you know a physical uh advantage as a result of that as, you know it's a strategy for them to be strong and fast and powerful and yes some players do you know reduce throughout a season unlike maybe in some other sports where it tends to be the way around um maybe you could just quickly explain what's happening there and why why that's important for us to stay on top of it yeah well i think look there the the, the pre-season period is it is an amazing phase of the season where these guys can change like if you've got those academy players that are breaking into the senior squad you know you could see some some good change in those players and if a player comes back into a pre-season a, a senior player and he's you know he's enjoyed the off season a little bit too much for example he hasn't trained he's he's you know he's, he's sat in the beer garden he's going to come back in not a very good shape. And so you could see some, some good shifts with those senior players in that preseason period. Combine that with the, the amount of weight that they're lifting, the volume that these guys are lifting week in, week out, and then the nutrition. If a player comes back at the start and he's not in a great position, he could end that preseason period in a, in a good position. And I suppose the reason I'm, I've just started with that is because when you then get into the in-season period, the, the main focus really is trying to just keep these guys at a level of fitness, but also, as you've alluded to, a, a good body composition. And inevitably, because they're playing the game on a, a Friday night, a Saturday, Sunday, the, the match day plus one normally is at home or they might go and do their own recovery strategies. So there's no training there. The match day plus two, the guys normally are still very, very sore. There, I mean, anecdotally, I, I remember speaking to players and they would say match day plus one, they couldn't feel a thing because they, they were that sore. They just they couldn't feel it. Match day plus two was when the soreness and the doms kicked in. And we know that that can last up to 72 hours, if not longer. So as they're then coming back into training, they're, they're still relatively sore. And so 
do you really want to start beasting them again and smashing them again? Because you're just accumulating that fatigue and that soreness. And so, you you know, the S&C coaches had to be really clever and smart about how much weight they were going to lift to try and maintain the the strength and the power that they've got, but to not overdo them so that they were then going into game two with that accumulative fatigue and that they weren't fresh. And I suppose that's where then the nutrition strategies could really support what the player was trying to achieve on that match day plus one or match day plus two. And Christ, I, I remember, you know, I, I, I laugh and I look back at it now because um, it, it was a crazy period of my practitioner life. But the, the, the mornings after games where 12 hours prior to that, I've just seen the players, you know, beast each other on a pitch. And then there we were at kind of the David Lloyds in Warrington. They were all in their skimpy uh, budgie smugglers. <laughs> and, and there I was with this kind of nutrition care package, if you like, that, you know, it, it had the individual shapes all made up. You know, we had all of their supplements and vitamins that they might have needed. One thing I did very well, I look back at, and it, I really enjoyed it, was, was I utilised a local farm shop in Widness and Warrington, whereby... I would go and pick up all of their fresh fruit that they weren't going to sell to customers. And so I would be there, you know, in, in the middle of David Lloyd's reception, cutting up oranges and making up these mixed berry platters, et cetera, with protein bars. And, and I remember looking back at that thinking at the time, you know, what, what, what am I doing here? But then the more I've reflected and looked at that, I thought, you know what, this is, this is nutrition when the players needed it most. They were, they were really sore, you know, a poor night's sleep because they were that damaged and inflamed. They might have been up with the, the, the newborn baby. And it's probably that morning after that they needed that nutrition the most. And so I look back and I'm so happy that I supported them through that match day plus one. And, and then, you know, trying to help them through the week then. If we go into match day plus two, plus three, you're now into the minus four, minus three. And it's looking at that going... Okay, have the players recovered? Have they are they recovered? Are they are they ready to hit training again? And and now we shift the attention to right now we're we're back into preparation. Let's go again for the next game. And it's just that cyclical nature over and over and over again in rugby league and and you know most team sports that I genuinely believe that unless you've got a full time practitioner in there working full time, you, you're not going to get anywhere near that. Um, yeah. And especially there's there's two kind of unbelievable periods of a rugby league season, which is the, the Christmas and Boxing Day period and also the, the Easter period where they, pay, they play three games in nine days and three games of rugby league where not only have you got the exercise-induced muscle damage, but you've now got that impact-induced muscle damage. The, um, the injury rate following the final third week game or sorry, following the final game in that nine-day period, the injury rate in the following week after that, I remember a Sky Sports article that reported something like 41% of the injuries in rugby league were due to that congested period. Amazing. And I, I, I think, yeah, you've just got that accumulative damage and fatigue going into the, the second game, the third game. And I think they, they almost break by the time they get to that end of the third, third game and mm. they go back into training on the match day plus two and, and bang, there goes the hammy. The, you know, the Achilles has given up. It's just too much stress and load gone through it. So, um, 
Yeah, I've uh, I've gone around the houses there, but yeah, no, no. Well, you no, no. It's because this is this is what this is about. It, you know, it's understanding all this stuff um, helps us as practitioners understand where we can or should not get involved. Um, and I, I just also, uh, from my perspective, uh, you know, one thing's also I remembered relative to what I saw with other types of sports or athletes is. Um, you know, they don't just love playing rugby, these guys. Um, they do also like being in the gym. You know, they like to have a lift. And, you know, yeah. the, the, there's some good banter that goes on in, uh, yeah. in the, you know, on the gym floor and um, a little bit of competitiveness sometimes, particularly with a really big unit, you know, um, when it's a bit of deadlifting or, uh, or whatever, you know, um, there, there's that too. Um, but let, I, I, I mentioned something earlier about being functionally injured. And by that, obviously, I mean... Yeah. You know, they're still still playing. You know, you, they've almost got to, to have an entire limb falling off before they'll actually maybe stop playing or, or go on the bench or whatever. So, um, you know, they, they, they are in uh, continuous states of recovering from training, from games like you've just pointed out. Um, and they're often sore. And we try and deal with that with our strategies, you know, getting their energy balance right and, you know, uh, periodizing our carbohydrates. And we haven't really talked about protein because it's kind of a, you know, I think we, we have a better idea about maybe protein needs, um, um, which we can come back to potentially um, when we talk about supplements in a second. But that's kind of where I'm going is the temptation to supplement the diet with magic bullets um, that may be able to help things like um, you know, help athletes recover faster, um, and uh, in particular, deal with this soreness. And that's where some research has been done. Of course, is in novel compounds, um, not not just about aiding performance. We read about that quite a bit lately. About different things have been you you know looked at to aid performance, but specifically for for um, inflammation. And before I, because I know you've done some research on this, before we we dip into that. Um, a few podcasts back, um, five podcasts ago, episode 135, um, I did a podcast about the microbiome with um, um, Dr. Jens Walter and Orla O'Sullivan. And um, Orla was telling us about the research they were doing on Irish rugby players, um, mm -hmm. about microbiome and so on. Um, and what Jens was saying is that he was blown away of just how good the rugby players' diets were um, in terms of, you know, overall quality. Um, and from their perspective, they're looking at fiber intake and, um, you know, vegetables and fruits and so on. And actually it was quite, you know, compared to general population, firstly, how well these guys uh, eat and specifically, you know, antioxidant-rich foods and polyphenol-rich foods and, and that sort of thing, which um, was very interesting. So I mentioned that because there are a number of, products out there that have um, been proposed to help support inflammation um, to include things like polyphenols. And um, you've done some, some research on there. And I think this is an interesting um, little avenue for us to go down because it is tempting to throw these things at our athletes. Um, and I, as I always like to say, you know, we, we maybe maybe we don't ask the, you know, the, the question of, I can do this, but should I enough? Um, and um, it, it isn't necessarily tested um, or assessed on 
the actual uh in the context um that we're intending to use it um but you have and you have looked at these and um i think this would be interesting for you to tell us you know why you did that research and and what you found yeah no definitely so uh, again this, this study really epitomizes the the willingness of, of rugby league players to, to rip into um, to research. And th this was a real exciting study that we, we did at Warrington. Um, we utilised um, a, a three, three matches over three weeks, um, all with seven-day turnarounds. And, and what we did in this study, and again, I, I have to say thank you to a, a, a handful of people at John Moores who ripped in and, and helped me on this study, because without them, I just wouldn't have been able to, to make it happen. But we followed um, the, the players, academy players, over three weeks. And within this study, the, the main purpose of this was that we wanted to try and firstly understand what levels of inflammation were sustained from professional rugby league match play. And then secondly, now we understand what that quantification looks like of inflammation. Can a polyphenol-rich or concentration form of polyphenol can can that help to try and reduce that inflammation that's been sustained so it was almost a two-fold study and so what we did over three weeks we did um we took bloods at minus 48 hours so that was a normal training day and that was just at the club in the morning uh, sorry uh, at the club in the afternoon when the players arrived to training we then took bloods at half time and full time and then we took bloods at plus 48 hours when the players were back at training. And if we zoom in at that half-time and full-time window, th this was an unbelievable effort from a number of researchers, but also, again, the head coach, Stu Barrow, of the academy team at the time. And we essentially bombarded their changing room. And we had needles stuck to the wall. We had tourniquets stuck to the wall. And I've got some brilliant pictures that... Um, that I can share after this, but and we and we had a setup in the changing room whereby there were six phlebotomists with needles at the ready, and as the players came in from playing that first forty minutes, they essentially sat down on their chair, the left arm dropped to the floor, and we had ten minutes to try and extract blood from thirteen professional rugby players in a ten-minute half-time window. And the, the head coach said to me, he was like, I'll, I'll allow you to do it if you all remain silent because I, I, want to, I want to carry on and do my team talk. And so we did. We were in there, almost silent assassins. And the player dropped the arm, the needle went in. And I'll be honest, and on some of the players, the, the, the tourniquet wasn't needed because they were that pumped up from the first game of four, first half of 40 minutes. And so there we were in the, in the changing room. We extracted the blood at halftime in absolute silence from 13 players. We then taped them up. The, the team talk was done and out they went for the second half. And, and we did that over three weeks. And then at the end of the full-time period, again, they came in a little bit more relaxed now because, you know, it was the end of the game. But we extracted the full-time samples as well. So we then had 12 sample points over three weeks we had that minus 48 hour half time full time plus 48 hours and this was really nice because we then looked at levels of inflammation within the blood 
And in particular, we focused on the interleukins and the cytokines. So we looked at interleukin 6, 8, and 10. Um, we did analyze 1, 2, and 4 as well. But interestingly enough, the, the interleukins of 1, 2, and 4 drew up um, below the limits of detection on the machine. So there, there was no data to analyze. But what was really interesting was that we, for the first time again in professional rugby players, in, in a real-world scenario where the players had consumed a normal habitual rugby diet, we had shown that inflammation was caused from rugby match play. Now, did we need the study to, to understand whether players were sore and inflamed? Probably not. But this really gave us the, the hard evidence to say, look, this is your level of inflammation, not only at half-time, pal, when you've played 40 minutes, but also now at 80 minutes there is a significant increase in the amount of interleukin 6, 8, and 10 that is circulating around your body because you are inflamed. And so it was that research then that, again, allowed me to really look at the recovery side of stuff and, and ask myself the question, okay, so here, here's the data. We know now that the, the elevation of interleukins is in the blood and it's statistically significant compared to half-time and also the 48 hours pre and post are my recovery strategies for these players optimal or not? And, and the main thing, or sorry, the second part to that study was then assessing on a randomized crossover design, whether a concentrated strength of, of polyphenols from you know, a, a, a supplement you can buy off the shelf um, was any different to a placebo control. And the interesting research or the, the interesting data from this, Laurent, was that in, in that situation, with professional players who consume a normal habitual rugby diet, we showed absolutely no difference between those that consumed the, the kind of the supplement of polyphenol versus those that had a placebo. And, and that was over that crossover design of two weeks. And so it then kind of made, made me think again about should I, in, in a sport where budgets can be tight sometimes, should I be spending my nutrition budget on supplements that I've just proved don't have any beneficial effect in at least the population of athletes that I'm working with? And so it almost um, supported my, my notion of, of utilizing the local farm shops. And instead of spending £30 a week on a, a polyphenol based supplement i was spending 15 pounds a week going to the local farm shop and picking up loads of fresh fruit and vegetables because if you look at the actual content of um the active component of the polyphenol in in the supplement versus fresh food like blueberries or, or raspberries or strawberries a, a 200 gram punnet of blueberries and some strawberries and um you know, raspberries, etc. You you can get the same amount from fresh food, and so I really then um, I, I looked at the, the the strategies we had, and and it really kind of supported my notion of that food first approach philosophy, and and the the main reason that we wanted to look into that as well was because there's some really nice research that does show that following exercise induced muscle damage in a laboratory controlled trial the the polyphenol does have beneficial effects which is brilliant so we know that it does work from exercise induced muscle damage but as we've quite 
um, in-depthly spoke about today. The, the difference with these guys is that, yes, you've got the exercise-induced muscle damage and the running around, but you've now got three blokes that are trying to take that man's head off and physically damage him from a legal tackle. And so it was then looking at the, the impact-induced muscle damage that he's caused from, from match play as well. Mm. And I think the main take-home from that study then was that in situations where you have exercise-induced muscle damage combined with impact-induced muscle damage from rugby match play, in a population of athletes where they're, they're not on a polyphenol deplete diet, they are in fact just consuming a normal habitual rugby diet, then there would be no beneficial effect of consuming a polyphenol-based supplement on, on top of a what, what would be a normal habitual diet anyway. And I think that leads nicely into what, what you said there about the, the previous podcast, mm. showing that rugby players actually, you know, have got a pretty decent diet already. Mm. And so that was, the, uh, that was the basis of that study. And I, that study is currently sitting on James Morton's desk. And I'm just waiting on a few comments back from him. And then we will get that, we'll get that out and published. But Brilliant. Real, real nice study. Um, professional players collecting blood samples, you know, at the halftime period, at full time, and it's a, it's a study I presented at ECSS a couple of years ago in in Dublin, and yeah, it was really nice to kind of share that research, I guess. No, brilliant. I mean, look, these are invaluable insights and information. You know, I mean, look, you spent years working on your PhD and doing all you know research, and um, I'm definitely going to have. Um, I'll link to all of the, you know, all of these studies and your, your PhD, which is open access um, by the university, I think. So it's, it yeah. makes for a, a brilliant read as well. Um, um, but you mentioned the three T's of nutrition, which of course is total type and timing. Um, you know, there's, there's some areas that we haven't gotten into because I don't think we need to. And, and anyway, there's only so much we can do in an hour and a half podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's a massive topic, but you know, I think we've, can comfortably say that we've we've discussed some thought-provoking areas which i think will be of great value to practitioners but just because people are going to go okay that's all mind-boggling stuff fascinating um fascinating stuff but just sort of a to end this conversation then this discussion that we've had just from a a a practitioner's perspective who's worked extensively in this area and also done research and and so on just a super quick overview if you can um about the total type and timing recommendations just a very quick general you know a couple of minutes overview of what you think the main considerations are bearing in mind the difference between you know stuff that that is identified in the lab and and so on relative to the reality of the real world within club setting that we've had a good go at i think yeah yeah well i think I think for the three T's, Lauren, it's really important that this doesn't um, get implemented on a on a blanket approach across your squad. And look, I speak I speak from experience of, of doing that in my early days, and I now look back at that, and probably there was an element there of a disservice to my athletes because no one player is the same in a squad, um, nor are they trying to achieve the same body composition goals or or, or whatever it may be. So. The first thing I'd say is that challenge the free T model to really nail that down on an individual approach rather than blanket. And then I think, look, with with rugby, 
Um, if, if we focus on the the amount of carbohydrates that need to be going in for these guys, I think it's clear now from from our research and others that that six gram per kilo of, of body mass needs to be the the minimum target really leading into that um, that game over that 36 hours before the the match. And then I think um, after that match straight away we need to be really focusing on ramping up the, the carbohydrates again um and and especially that four hour window looking at are we you know am i can i look at every player now and, and visibly see that the amount of carbohydrates are going in and if they're not then then that fatigue may set in because we haven't nailed what james morton really well presents at the moment is that that knowledge into the delivery are, are we able to, to look at the knowledge and actually deliver it on an individual basis. I think the protein side of stuff, you know, I, I certainly had my players in and around the region of 2 to 2.5 grams per kilo of, of body mass. And, and the classic kind of pulsing theory on that, you know, regular intakes throughout the day, um, certainly first thing in the morning before, they're, before they actually come to the club. Again, that was one area that I noticed with the players that, on days where we provided breakfast at the club, they would quite often get up um, at home that, you know, they might have been living in Leeds at the time, but they would get up at six o'clock straight in the car and drive to the club two hours later. And they haven't had anything go into the body yet. And I, I remember looking at those windows of opportunities thinking, Christ, no wonder you're not getting any bigger. Like you, you, you're missing that huge two hours after that overnight sleep where you haven't got any nutrition in. So, I think, um, yeah, the protein pulsing over the course of the day to to ultimately achieve that two to two point five gram per kilo of body mass, the carbohydrate six gram per kilo leading into the game, and then I think then it comes down to the the periodization then of that through the week. And I know, you know, we there's lots of conversations about red, amber, green days, high, low carb. Um, high, low or medium carb, sorry. But again, that comes down to the, the individual player. You know, w- what demands has that player got going on that day? Um, does he finish training and then he has to go out and take the kids out on an hour cycle? Oh, and then, by the way, he's got to take the dog out as well. And that was one thing we found with the WLA re- uh, water study, that there was a lot of non-exercise activity thermogenesis that was going on. Which, which was outside of the club demands. It was, you know, what were the, what were the players doing at home? Um, and then the, yeah, I think, yeah, we've, we've covered the, the carbs and the protein there, haven't we? So yeah, I think, yeah, the, the, the big thing I'd like to add there as well, I was just reflecting back on it when uh, we were talking earlier that I also noticed on a match day minus one, we used to provide breakfast at the club after the captain's run. And the captain's run used to be about 10 o'clock till about half 10. And there were a lot of players that used to wait till the breakfast after the captain's run to have breakfast. And so you think they used to get up at six o'clock and they've, they've basically not had any nutrition for four hours on a match day minus one, where, by the way, we're trying to get six gram per kilo of carbohydrates in ready for the game tomorrow. And I remember sitting down with some players and thinking, like, are you not hungry? And and they, you know, the response was, yeah, I am, but I'm waiting for breakfast after captain's run. And I, I used to think there, like there, there's a massive window where players were just not consuming enough carbohydrates in the morning to, to ultimately achieve that six gram per kilo. 
Yeah, looking for those opportunities is such an important thing, isn't it? And then mm. finding the the strategies, the uh, I like to call them tools in a toolbox. You know, it's uh, sure. the knowledge, the science, the uh, the food, the supplements. These are all tools in your toolbox. You know, this is, this has been brilliant yeah. conversation, James. I'm I'm been loving it, and unfortunately. <laughs> We're going to have to call it a day. Um, but I know that um, there's so much to be gained from, from what's been uh, discussed today and even more by reading your, um, your thesis and your papers and, and so on. And I I'm, cannot I'm wait to see what all this, uh, you know, pending uh, new research is going to tell us. And, yeah. you know, practitioners nowadays can look forward to being, you know, so much more evidence informed by quality and relevant evidence it's great great time to be a performance nutritionist uh, 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 despite there being a pandemic <laughs> it's a great great time i think um if people want to follow you james um you know uh, you're active much on social media you know wh wh where's where's the best way for people to uh, to follow you and your work and what you're up to and learn about all these new publications as and when they come out yeah, for sure. I think um, I'm, I'm only grinning because if you asked all of the the LJMU people if I'm active on Twitter, they would they would laugh. <laughs> um, but look, yeah, I, I am active. I, I used to be a lot more active than I am now, but I'm I'm definitely active on Twitter, um, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, and then yeah, I'm I'm happy for you to to link my email in if if people look. Rug, rugby is an unbelievable sport, and it, I would um, encourage anyone that's currently working in it to to really push the boundaries on on collecting and analysing these these unbelievable athletes, and it's it's certainly something I'm doing on the inside now in my current role. Um, but if people want to talk about the research that I've done or just have a general chit chat around performance research and nutrition, then I'm more than happy to do that. I think people know me by now. Yeah, no, that, oh, it, it, yeah, no, that's great. It's great to hear. And thank you for all your work in that area and for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, everyone, um, we've referenced a few podcasts and so on and, um, uh, and uh, the papers and so on. I'll link to all of those um, in the notes on this, on this podcast, which um, everyone can access from our website, which is www.the iopn.com um where you can also get access to our uh, educational videos and our um professional training and education for uh performance nutritionists our programs that uh, that we do on that as well um thank you james um and um i uh am looking forward to talking to you again at some point in the future get you back on the podcast that would be awesome yeah for sure no problems at all and yeah look after yourself yeah, no, thank you very much. Uh, okay, everyone, well, um, I'm looking forward to bringing another podcast back to you very soon. And of course, I'm Lauren Brannock. Talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.